The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 10, verses um, 13 through 31. Please stand with me as I read God's word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the reading of God. Well, as you can see, we are just continuing our journey here in Mark. Um, we're in chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Um, before we just hit pause and just pray, let me just encourage you that uh, this coming summer um, we have various opportunities uh, for missions. Um, one of the ways that we seek to be witnesses for Christ, to invest in the lives of others so that we can invite them to come and consider the, the saving work of Jesus Christ, to declare the mystery of Christ to them. Um, we try to do that globally. That's why we're going to uh, Italy here in about a month 
Um, we try to do that nationally. That's why we partner like with guys like Dave and Dreesen up in Chicago. But one of the ways that we're uh, desiring to see this even work out at the local level um, is not just through your one-on-one relationships as you continue to pray for your four and opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with them, but we are seeking to put opportunities to do that in front of you. And we have six of them this coming summer. Four of them are with Bites in the Boulevard, and two of them are with Delta in the Park. If you remember that, there's those opportunities to go to Washington Park um, to have basically like a miniaturized sort of VBS, for a lack of a better word, where we cook food, we cook hot dogs and hamburgers, and then we do a Bible gospel presentation. We have games for the kids. And in the past year or two that we've done this, it's just been very, very successful. Uh, We've gone to where people are, and we've invited them to come, and they've come. And there's been gospel conversations, and like free food draws like anybody almost, right? And so people come, and it's just a great time. So we're going to have two opportunities for that at the end of June and July. We ask you to consider carving out time in your summer schedule for those and then those four times um, in uh, June, July, August, and September for Bites on the Boulevard. Again, we know summer is busy, but we're asking you to consider carving out at least an hour of that time to come and serve some water um, to people, to just be a face in our community, to let people know there's people who love Jesus and there's people who love, who love them. Um, 90% of the people that are going to show up there and come to our tent, they just want a cold bottle of water, and rightly so. And it's our delight, and it's our privilege, and it's our honor to, to serve them in that way. Um, but Colossians 4 tells us that it's good and right to pray for those open doors of opportunity to share Jesus. And if you've been able to serve at Bites on the Boulevard, there's about 10% of people who just come, and you can just tell, man, they're just, they're just lingering. Uh, they want conversation. Uh, they're just looking for something. And it's those 10% that we are, we are running after, man. And you can have an opportunity to be uh, a witness for Jesus to those 10%, those open doors of opportunity that God is going to present. So we ask you to consider carving out time for that as well, okay? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to turn our attention to what does it look like to inherit eternal life? If there is ever a question that is just sort of the question of all questions, it's this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so we're going to hit pause, we're going to pray, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to in empower the preaching of his word, and then we're going to dive into this text this morning. So why don't you guys join me in prayer? Jesus, we're here this morning to hear from you. Uh, This morning isn't just an opportunity for me to give a speech to present a message. This isn't the John Davis hour. We are desperate to hear from you. We need you to empower this time in the word. Our minds are lazy. They're prone to drift. We need you to sharpen our minds. Our eyes are prone to not see the beauty of Christ. We need you to open our eyes. Our ears are prone to pick and choose the truths we want to receive. I ask that you would open our ears to receive the word of Christ this morning. I can't flip a switch and make it happen, but Holy Spirit, you can. And so I ask that you, Father, would delight to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit this morning so that faith might come to rest in the power of God, namely the person and work of King Jesus. It's in the name of King Jesus, our resurrected Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. 
Well, we've all seen it, and my guess is perhaps at some time in our life, in some way, shape, or form, we've all been on the receiving end of it. Imagine this in your mind. The scene is your elementary school. The setting is recess, and the occasion was picking teams for kickball, okay? The two captains were picked, most likely the two more popular people in your age. They're set apart, and then what happens is that everyone lines up in front of the two captains, and then what do they begin to do? They begin to pick teams. So there you are standing in line, and the ensuing anxiety begins to mount as the captains begin to choose candidates to be on their team. And so there you are standing in line, wishing on a star that the captains, that just one, maybe this is the one time the captain is going to actually pick people based upon the internal character of the person and not the external qualities of the person. At least that's sort of where I found myself. But inevitably, what becomes blatantly obvious is that the captains are picking people based upon external qualities. If you could kick the ball hard, if you could run fast, if you could throw straight, then the choice was crystal clear and everyone knew it. The boy or the girl with these external qualities was the perfect candidate to make the pickball team. If someone was just a bystander, maybe walking by the elementary school recess yard and they just saw this playing out, they might even be prone to think themselves, well, this boy, this girl, just look at them. They just obviously look like they are the perfect candidates to be on the team and they begin to pick and choose maybe the people in their own mind. And now what happens is when we turn our attention to Mark chapter 10 and these verses in front of us, 13 through 31, what we find is ourselves in similar territory to the elementary school recess yard. But instead of asking the question, what makes a good candidate for the kickball team, Mark is driving us to wrestle with the question, what makes a good candidate for the Jesus team? See, the sub-theme of discipleship is continuing with full effect here in these chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And now it's time to wrestle with what truly qualifies a person to find salvation. What qualifies a person to find eternal life? What qualifies a person to find a place in the kingdom of God? You see, at the center point of our verses lies the question of the rich young ruler who is very sincere, very earnest. The things of eternal life are on his mind. He runs to Jesus and he asks him the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And all of us sort of have answers in our mind, maybe even right now, man, the perfect candidate to inherit eternal life, the perfect candidate to receive the kingdom of God, the perfect candidate to make Team Jesus looks like this, and we begin to fill in the blank. But what Jesus is going to do is what he does so often is he's going to turn those qualities on their head. Because what we're going to soon find out is the one person we've met so far in Mark's gospel who looks like the premier candidate to receive the kingdom of God, the one who looks like if anybody is going to inherit eternal life, it's this guy, the rich young ruler, we actually find out he's the one who proves himself to be the most disqualified to be a candidate 
to receive eternal life. So as we turn our attention to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, we're eventually going to focus on the rich young ruler. You see, thinking about matters of eternity, things beyond the material, things beyond the physical that we interact with day in, day out, week in and week out, considering questions like, what's my purpose in life? Why am I here in this place? Where am I going to go when I die? What will happen to me when I die? These matters of eternity, they have fallen on hard times. According to popular opinion, this life is all there is. The creed that many live by is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But in contrast to this sort of form of hedonism that just says live for the now, soak up the now, enjoy the material things of this world to their maximum pleasure for you, so that you are served and so that you find fulfillment because when you go in the grave, you just sort of, in essence, become food for worms. There's nothing else beyond this life. In contrast to this, the Bible says God has actually created you for a purpose. We are created by him to exist forever and to exist forever somewhere. Unfortunately, these matters of eternal life, they just far too often get swept aside as the pressing tyranny of the urgent, the day-in, day-out sort of mundane routine of life vies for our attention, and it sort of numbs us to the realities that there is something beyond the here and now. But when we turn our attention to the rich young ruler, we see that eternal life is not on the back burner of life, it's on the forefront of his mind. He wants eternal life. And his quest has driven him to the one that he thinks might be able to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so in order to get us as readers of his gospel to wrestle with the realities of eternal life, Mark is going to stitch together two interactions of Jesus that ultimately revolve around this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or better, whom must I trust in order to inherit eternal life? And the first thing that Mark shows us is this, is that in in answer to the question, inheriting eternal life is a matter of childlike trust. He's first going to turn our attention to verses 13 through 16, where there's this little miniaturized interaction that Jesus has with some children that are being brought to him. And part of what Mark is doing is he's setting us up to understand why the rich young ruler is going to eventually walk away sad at the words of Jesus. And it's because the rich young ruler is failing to see this principal truth that we find in verses 13 through 16. Again, that inheriting eternal life is actually a matter of childlike trust. So when you look in verse 13, we see that many parents... We're bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, Mark says, causing the disciples to ultimately begin to rebuke these parents. Jesus ain't got time for your kids. Kids were meant to be seen and not heard, and more times than not, they weren't even meant to be seen. Children in Jesus' day and culture had very little societal value. 
But here are parents recognizing there's something unique about Jesus and they're bringing their children to Jesus. The disciples, they ain't got time for this. But when Jesus saw the rebuke of the disciples, he was indignant. He became righteously angry at the disciples for their ill-favored treatment of these parents and of these children. And he says to them, notice, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And here's these truths. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a a child shall not enter it, shall not enter it. So before Mark gets us to Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, he first establishes this truth that childlike trust is how a person receives the kingdom of God. And these two interactions that we're going to see this morning with the children and with the rich young ruler, we find two phrases that are synonymous. This phrase, receiving the kingdom of God and inheriting eternal life. They're not two different things. They're synonymous for this idea of what can happen to a person when they find forgiveness for their sins. To find forgiveness for your sins, Jesus oftentimes talks about receiving the kingdom of God. To receive the kingdom of God is to find forgiveness for your sins. To inherit eternal life is to find forgiveness for your sins. So, to receive the kingdom is to inherit eternal life. To inherit eternal life is to receive the kingdom. Both phrases are driving at the good news of what it means to have life with God under the rule of God because we're trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And the central issue with receiving God's kingdom comes down to whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? Are you looking to self or are you looking to Christ? Jesus says when these little children are hanging around him, there is something about a child that teaches us the essential nature of trust that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. He says it there in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Not, well, maybe you might be the one in ten who sneak through Jesus is saying it's got to be this way. Genuine salvation, forgiveness for your sins, eternal life, reception as a citizen into the kingdom of King Jesus, it comes to those who are genuinely trusting in Christ with childlike trust. See, Jesus is basically saying, just notice the way of children. Just observe them. Children are helpless. Their lives are in the hands of another. Their hope for basic provision, it's entirely dependent on someone else. They're powerless. They're void of standing. They really sort of come into this world with nothing in their hands, right? They are looking to someone else in complete trust to provide for their existence. In short, if you think about children, this one sentence describes them very, very well. That total trust in someone else is the center of their existence, No child comes in this world and says, Mom, I got this figured out. I will sustain myself. 
I've got a job already. I'm heading to work tomorrow. My IRA is already firing all cylinders. I already hit the grocery store. I appreciate this. It's like, man, like, I, you know, like no kid does that. That baby comes into the world entirely helpless with no hope other than this hope. My trust is in this one to provide everything that I need. And I think Jesus is saying that kind of trust. That kind of trust. Childlike trust is how we find reception into the kingdom of God. And so it just happens that as Jesus lays out these realities of what genuine reception of the kingdom of God looks like, that it looks like childlike trust, Mark then stops that interaction and immediately shifts us to the rich young ruler. Why? Because he wants us to see an example of someone who is not doing this. It just so happens that this approach to God and his kingdom, this childlike trust, is exactly what we do not see in the rich young ruler. Because ultimately, what the rich young ruler is doing is he's trying to earn his way into the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to find out as we begin to unpack these verses. He looks phenomenal on the outside. He looks like he has the whole act put together. But what you find is that the ultimate issue is it's not in God I trust. It's in me that I trust. And so the second truth that we see this morning as we shift into the actual interaction of Jesus with this rich young man is that inheriting eternal life is not found in what you do. See, Mark continues on in verse 17 by telling us that as Jesus was setting out on his journey, in Mark's gospel, we are right on the cusp of the end of Christ's earthly life. Jesus is making a beeline to Jerusalem. He's going to tell us again next week. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. And so here's Jesus now on this journey. A man runs up to him, Mark says, kneels down before him and asks him the question, good teacher, what must I do to, be, to, to inherit eternal life? As I said earlier, man, like there are just questions in life. Life is just filled with questions. And there's some good questions and there's some bad questions. But there's just some questions that just sort of ring true with the realities of a life. And when the rich young man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like this is one of the grand questions of life that is just preloaded with significance. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has hardwired eternity into the heart of man. But unfortunately, so few people pay attention to this aspect of who they are. We're not the result of random cosmic forces. We are not clumps of cells shaped by time plus energy and chance. We're not merely dust in the wind. We are unique creations created by God. We are souls with bodies. We are embodied souls. God has knit us together with intentionality in this way. And far too often what we do is we go through life putting 110% towards the maintenance and care of our physical bodies to the neglect and the detriment of the thing that will live beyond our bodies, our soul. But again, this is not what we see with the rich young man. 
When he dies, he knows that his soul will continue on. This is why he's concerned with inheriting eternal life. And so he runs to Jesus, kneels before him, and asks the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, by all accounts of external measurement, to stand back and look at the life of the rich young man, people would assume, and if anyone is a shoe-in to receive and inherit eternal life, it's this guy. When you look at this account, which finds itself in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, what we begin to learn is this, is that this man was rich, eminently wealthy. This man was young. Luke tells us he was a ruler, that is most likely a religious ruler. That's why so often we just call him the rich young ruler or the rich young man, which is probably what your Bible has as a bold heading here in in Mark 10. But beyond him being rich, young, and a ruler, we find out that he was earnest in the ways of God. He was religious to the max. He was devout to the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments, man, they were what he ate, they were what he drank, it's what he slept. By the standards of the day, if you would ask, who is the perfect picture of a good person, people would go, this guy's it. This guy's it. And to observe from the outside, anyone could say with confidence, this is the candidate that's worthy to be on Team Jesus. This is the one who deserves entrance into God's kingdom. If anyone inherits eternal life based upon the external realities that we can observe and interact with, this is the guy. On the outside, the rich young man looked totally pulled together, but the reality is that on the inside, he didn't have it all together. And the reason why we know he doesn't have it all together is because if he had it all together, he wouldn't have come to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The implication of his question is that his wealth, his youth, the prestige that he earned from his job as a ruler, his religiosity, his biblical knowledge, his interactions with the ways of God. The way that he's going to say here in a minute, like I have really strove very hard to walk throughout this life in a way that honors God. But the implication when he says, like, I, I need you, Jesus, to tell me, like, what is this whole eternal life thing about? Is that he is noticing there's a lack and a void even with all of his doing that he's, he's been about so far. So in response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He calls Jesus the good teacher. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's verse 18. Admittedly, it's an odd statement, but what Jesus is not saying is that he's not good. Jesus isn't saying that. Rich young man, good teacher. Jesus is like, bro, like I ain't good. You don't need to be calling me that. Jesus isn't saying that. But in answering this way, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is challenging the flaw in this young man's understanding of what goodness is and what goodness earns. You see what's going on here? Here's a good man, a rich young man. 
he comes up to Jesus, assuming that Jesus is a good guy just like him. I mean, look at Jesus. He's doing all the right religious Jewish stuff. I'm a good man. He's a good man. Maybe we can buddy up and good men talking to good men can discover what good men earn for being good. But Jesus isn't going to play this game. You see, if this rich young man, because he had a self-perception of him being good, if he is coming to Jesus, looking for Jesus to reinforce his self-perception of being good and his goodness earning something from God, Jesus wasn't going to play that game. Because nobody can earn their way into eternal life. No one can be good enough to receive the kingdom of God. Because once you start playing that game, and some of us are here playing this game right now in regards to salvation, and some of us even struggle with this as having been genuinely saved, is we begin to bank on our goodness as the reason why we deserve to receive certain things in the kingdom. But we begin to beat ourselves up because we have to ask the question is how good is good? When do you ever arrive at the place where you go, I have now achieved perfection, goodness, and I am owed everything? Because I'm telling you, the moment you get to that place, you go, oh, is there a little bit more I need to be doing? Then you get to this place, and you're like, I don't know, man. Like, do I need to be a little bit more extra good? Because the thing I was good at yesterday, I actually failed at today. And so, like, is that goodness sort of negated by this goodness that I'm trying to do? And it's this wicked devilish sort of cycle we begin to spin out in. And so here's this man. I think this is what's going on in the psychology of his mind where he's like, listen, I'm trying to do the good thing, Jesus, but it's not panning out. There is something obviously lacking in my life. Help me, please. Help me to understand. Help me to grasp what I must do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Prompting the rich young man to say, teacher, he's a quick learn. Do you notice it was good teacher? And now he's like, ooh, just sort of got took to the got spanked a little bit for calling him good, so I'm, just, I'm going to still call him teacher, but I'm not going to call him good. <laughs> teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, you read this here, and I think I've so often read this, we're like, man, what a braggadocious punk, man. Do not murder, commit adultery, steal. Bro, you've never stolen anything, man, like that pack of gum from your brother way back in the day. Like, don't bear false witness. That is, don't tell a lie, man, like you ain't ever told your wife she looked good when she was actually maybe not, you know, actually looking as sharp as she probably could have been, man, you've never done that. Do not defraud, you're telling me, with all the wealth that you've earned, you've never defrauded anybody, you weren't a cheat to make all this wealth so young. Honor your father and mother, man, you're telling me you've always done that. Braggadocious little punk. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Notice that Jesus, when the rich young man says, all these I've kept from my youth, Jesus doesn't turn to him and go, liar. Man, I know you. You haven't done this. He doesn't do this. Jesus just flat out accepts the man's assertion that he's kept all these things from his youth. And I think the reason why Jesus accepts the assertion is because the rich young man's response is genuinely sincere. 
It's not a braggadocious statement of self-boasting. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Obey the commandments. Come on, Jesus. Don't you know that I've done these things my whole life? Come on, roll out something next. Man, I'm knocking this whole religious thing out of the park. I think it's less braggadocious statement of self-boasting, and it's more of a confession. Listen, Jesus, even though I've done all these things, I'm telling you right now, I can feel it in the depths of my soul. Something is still lacking. I've done all these things in my youth. This can't be the answer. This can't be the answer. And so he comes to Jesus wondering, man, is there something I've missed? Is there something I've overlooked? He's looking for that one thing he must do in order to satisfy the ingrained eternal ache of the soul that reverberates in every one of us. And Mark tells us that Jesus looked at the rich young man, loved him, and said to him, bro, it's true, you are lacking one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come, follow me. Now, again, Jesus is the king of statements that make you go, what? Because <laughs> it sounds like on the, off the cuff, like Jesus is telling him to go do, do something else. Obey the commandment, obey the commandment, obey the commandment. Jesus, I've knocked these out from my youth. Man, there's got to be something more. It sounds like Jesus says, listen, man, you got a lot of stuff. Just go sell it. If you sell it, then you're in. But when Jesus gives this reply, what he's not doing is he is not giving a formula for inheriting eternal life. He's not doing that. As though selling material possessions somehow earns eternal life. Rather, in saying this, Jesus is challenging the man to examine the object of his childlike trust. Because this man right now has childlike trust in something. None of us are neutral in this reality. All of us are looking to a savior of some sort. All of us have childlike trust in something to where when life gets hard, things get rough, things don't go our way, when life sort of comes and kicks us in the shin and puts us down, those things we almost immediately, um, internally, without thinking, drift to in that moment are the indicators that I have childlike trust in this thing, fill in the blank, whatever it is, that this will be my savior in this moment. And for this man, the rich young man, what we learn is that he is essentially placing childlike trust in his wealth. And so Jesus is challenging the man to examine the object of his childlike trust. God must be God in our lives. No one and nothing can stand between him and us. But for this rich young man, his wealth occupied the place that only God should have in his life. In other words, wealth was his God. So when Jesus says, go, sell all that you have to give to the poor, he's essentially saying to the man, listen, I have no doubt that you are sincere right now. No doubt in my mind about your question of inheriting eternal life. But if you want eternal life, says Jesus, 
If you want intimacy with God forever, if you want to get over that nagging sense that there's still something lacking, then you need to let go of your childlike trust in your wealth and turn in childlike trust to me, the king. That is how we find and inherit eternal life. And notice the response of the man. Disheartened by the saying. Disheartened by the saying. He goes home sad. And Mark tells us the reason why he went home sad is because he had a lot of stuff. Great possessions. Had a lot of wealth. It proved ultimately that this man's savior was really his possessions and eternal life was just another commodity to be gained. One more possession to stick into the portfolio. He had a physical portfolio, financial portfolio. He was rocking and firing all cylinders. Man, he's young and he's rich. I mean, he's doing, he's doing the rich young man thing with, the, with bravado. And he sort of is like, well, maybe I need to open up sort of like a spiritual portfolio here. Can I just sort of add like the Jesus stuff to this sort of like rich young ruler thing and like be good? And Jesus says, no, man. Because right now what's occupying the place of your childlike trust is your wealth. And it's not wealth plus Jesus. It's not children plus Jesus. It's not job plus Jesus. It's not house plus Jesus. It's not wife or husband plus Jesus. It's not prestige. It's not the respect of others plus Jesus. It is Jesus plus nothing. That is the formula for getting into the kingdom of God. And this man was sitting here trying to argue a different formula. Can I have wealth plus Jesus and get in? And Jesus goes, no, man, for you specifically, what you have to do is recognize wealth is your God. That God is an idol. You're not to have any other idols before me, says God. That idol needs to die, and you need to turn and trust to me, your Savior, the one who's going to go to the cross in order to ransom sinners. See, for his whole life, this man had done something to gain, and now Jesus says you need to lose in order to gain. You've got to lose in order to gain. This man is the premier at doing stuff to gain. What do I got to do? Do you notice the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's basically asking Jesus, give me something, man. Give me something I can do. Because my whole life has been me doing in order to gain. And Jesus says, here's the one thing you need to do. You need to lose in order to gain. In other words, Jesus was calling this man to imagine life without money. To imagine all of his money gone. To imagine that when all that you have in the end, when everything is stripped away, is me. And Jesus, in essence, is posing this question, can you live like that, Jesus is asking the guy. If all was stripped away, would I be enough? And it's the question that we have to wrestle with this morning. If you lost your spouse, would Jesus still be enough? If you lost your job, would Jesus still be enough? 
if you lost respect in the community, if you lost that promotion, if you found yourself in a place where your children was gone, you had no money, you had no retirement, you had no more, 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 and there you are standing in the ash and rubble of life, and all you have is Christ. Jesus is saying, is that enough? Because if it's not enough, then you're playing the Jesus plus game. And Jesus is saying it's not Jesus plus something gets eternal life. It's me and me alone. And so if all is stripped away, rich young man, am I enough? And the rich young man goes, nope. That's why he goes away sad. That's why he's disheartened. Jesus alone wasn't enough. He wanted his money plus Jesus. You see, in God's economy, listen, in God's economy, eternal life is gained by losing. Eternal life is gained by losing. Jesus knows that money has always been one of the most common saviors. Money has a way of keeping us, keeping me, keeping you from him. Money has a way of keeping us possessed by our possessions and blinding us to the realities of our spiritual need that can only be satisfied in Jesus. You see, it's no mistake that Jesus rolls right out of the disheartened nature of the man into verse 23 and drops on us one of the biggest doozies that you find in all of the Gospels. Listen to what Jesus says. He's looking around at the disciples. I think it's in Luke's Gospel. It says he's actually observing the disheartened nature of the rich young ruler as he's sort of just walking away home disheartened because he found out that in order to gain eternal life, he actually has to lose himself for the sake of Christ. And Jesus watches this as the dude rolls home, looks at the disciples, and then says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Rightly prompting the disciples to be amazed. What? How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus sees how amazed they are at his statement. It prompts him to repeat himself and give an illustration. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of commentators spill a lot of ink like, camel through the eye of a needle. What is this? Is it something in Jerusalem? Is it a gate? And what is it, a real camel? That kind of thing. No, man, like any like three-year-old knows what's going on. Jesus is giving this ridiculous illustration to prove a point. It's like, he's, like, he's saying, like maybe in common parlance, is like a snowball's chance. When pigs fly, snowball has a better chance of existing in hell, and a pig has a better chance of flying. A camel has a better chance of going through the eye of a needle than a rich man has getting into heaven. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's driving a point home. And you know that the disciples understand what Jesus is saying because they move from being amazed at his words to what? 
being exceedingly astonished at what Jesus just said. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that it's a sin to be rich. Not saying that. Any more than Jesus is saying it's good to be poor. Jesus isn't saying that. But what he is saying is that money, wealth, possessions, these things have particular power to blind us to our true spiritual need. Now, here's the danger in this. Right now, you, there's a decent chance, are sitting here hearing this going, yeah, man, that's right, those rich people, those with wealth and possessions, the Bill Gates and the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses of the world, filthy rich, multiple millions to their name. These guys need to hear this, man, because they need to know that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But if you're sitting here going like this, then you've got it wrong because what we're meant to do is look at the rich young ruler and it's a mirror we're meant to see ourselves because we have wealth that's incomparable to the standards of the world today. We have money that we use to try to medicate that nagging eternal ache of the soul. We've got possessions that possess us and keep us from seeing the deep-seated spiritual need that we use to try to medicate ourselves so that when that thought creeps into our mind, when our head is on the pillow at night, of, bro, maybe we should think a little bit more about this eternal thing. Money, wealth, possessions, they sneak in and go, no, man, you're good. No, man, you're all right. No, man, look at how much respect and honor that you have. Look at that promotion that you just got. See, we know what it's like to have possessions that possess us, that prevent us, that have a power that blinds us to seeing our true spiritual need. And so in a way, what Jesus is doing is saying, he's like, you need to see yourself in this text. Like, right, when he says that it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, you can start putting things in our world into these verses. How difficult for those who have a love for possessions, they are not going to enter into the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who love their computer more than Christ because the computer gives them access to pornography. They're not going to see the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who are going to not say no to that job promotion because they know they say no to yes to that job promotion, it's going going to keep them from the things. But what they're sitting here is doing is wrestling. It's like, no, I can't say no to that job promotion. I want that money. I want that power. I want that prestige. I want that place. And our heart's loves begin to pull and tug at us. It's possible to be possessed by a love for a father or for a mother that will keep you out of the kingdom of Christ. It's possible to be possessed by a love for your children that will keep you from the kingdom of Christ. It's possible to be possessed by a love for life that will keep you out of the kingdom of Christ. And I'm not saying this right now because it's my thought. Jesus says it himself in Luke 14. He says, the great crowds accompanied him and turned to him. And and Jesus said to these great crowds, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, hate his mother, hate his wife, hate his children, hate his brothers, hate his sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? Is that in comparison to 
him, everything must fall down and bow the knee. Christ alone must be the center of our heart's trust, the center of our heart's affection, the center of our heart's love. He's not commanding us to go and hate. He's just saying it is possible to be so devoted to mom, dad, brother, sister, life, children, that you are placing them in the center where God ought to be and not find eternal life. I don't know how else to say that, man. That's just hard. Yeah, hard. Anybody? It's a hard saying, man. Money, wealth, possessions, they have a particular power to blind us to our true spiritual need. In fact, they have so much power to deceive us to our true spiritual poverty. That's why we need a gracious, miraculous, divine intervention from God himself in order to open our eyes to see our true spiritual poverty. And that's why, lastly, Jesus teaches us that inheriting eternal life is impossible with man, but it's possible with God. You see, the, the disciples, for as much as they're hard-hearted and they're just not quite getting it, man, they're, they're not dummies. And we know they're grasping they're picking up what Jesus is putting down because of what Jesus says here in verse, or because of what the disciples say in verse 26, right? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, the disciples, and they turned and said to Jesus, then who on earth can be saved? And who can do it? prompting Jesus to say, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, salvation is something that man cannot accomplish. With men, entering God's kingdom and inheriting eternal life is impossible, and no one will be saved if it was left up to the devices of men. Be awakened to our deep-seated spiritual poverty is not something we can do, but with God, all things are possible and anyone can be saved who comes to Him in childlike trust. Now, inheriting eternal life, it comes with a cost, as Peter asks about in verse 28. Jesus confirms this cost in verse 29. It comes with great reward that far outstretches our imagination. That's verse 30. The gospel inverts the power structures and systems of the world. That's verse 31. But when Jesus says all things are possible with God, he is preaching the good news of God's power alone to save sinners. He is magnifying the good news of God's sovereign grace. Eternal life can never, never never be earned, but eternal life is freely given to those who see their need of Him. You see, inheriting eternal life, it's only possible because Jesus, think about this, Jesus Himself is the ultimate rich young ruler. Do you see this? 
Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. Jesus went into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known so that impoverished sinners might know the immeasurable riches of eternal life. The Apostle Paul says it perfectly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, when he says of Jesus, listen, Though Jesus was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus lived in the incomprehensible glory, the incomprehensible love, the incomprehensible joy of the Trinity from all eternity. But at the cross, Jesus, the ultimate rich young ruler, left that wealth behind him, took our poverty upon himself so that you and I might inherit the riches of eternal life. See, this is the upside-down nature of the cross. He who was rich became poor so that by his poverty we might become spiritually rich, rich with the full and forever treasures of eternal life. And so when Jesus, the ultimate rich young ruler, is looking at the earthly rich young ruler, what he's saying to him is, listen, I'm not asking you to tread any ground that I haven't trod before you. I'm asking you to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and what? Follow me. Jesus isn't over here saying, bro, the way to eternal glory is somewhere over there, and you better know I ain't going down that road. Jesus is going down that road to the cross going, let's go. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it. I'm the rich young ruler who's getting this thing done. I'm going to lay down my life, loosen my grip on these eternal riches, become impoverished and poor. Why? So that poor, impoverished sinners can come to me and find eternal riches in Christ. Jesus is just going, listen, just follow me. I can save. It's impossible with you. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life, but I've done everything, and I've inherited it for you. It's my inheritance to give. I'm freely giving it out. Gracious, he's not a stingy God. The treasures of heaven... Jesus isn't Ebenezer Scrooge over there counting his coins, being real stingy with the treasures of heaven. He's up here going, come on, come on. Who's wanting it, man? Come on. Come to me in childlike trust, but man, it's yours. Infinite, pouring it out, never ending. Grace upon 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 grace. This is the upside-down nature of that thing right there. He who was rich became poor so that by his poverty you, sinner, might become rich. Because this is true, it just makes total sense that the hymn writer would call us to sing, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy weak and wounded, sick, sore, impoverished. We got to know this. Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. 
I think that's why I love verse 21 so much in this whole interaction. Because Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. And said to him, my man, you lack one thing. That nagging sensation in that ache of your soul, it is true. That's why I'm telling you to reorient the loves of your life. Lay them down. Deny yourself. Pick up the cross. And come follow me. So the question for you is you've got to ask yourself this morning. How are you answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Either you find yourself in the place of the rich young man trying to do something to, etern, to earn the eternal ward of eternal life. Or your doing is actually losing sight of yourself, losing childlike trust in the things of this world in order to cling to him who is the ultimate rich young ruler. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Oh, you're so good. You're good to love sinners. God loved us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us, loved us. Not because we're perfect. God loved us not because we had our act together. God loved us not because we were rich and young and wealthy and looked put together on the outside. God loved us while we are yet sinners. He died for us when we were rebellious hellions bent against him. But in grace, the rich young ruler laid down his life for a sinner such as I. Oh God, I pray that you would awaken hearts this morning. God, there's two categories of people here today. If we would just want to make it as simplistic as possible. There's people here trusting in themselves to earn eternal life, whether they admit it or not. And there are those of us who have eternal life, but we just feel the tug and pull of wealth and money and possessions that so often blind us from the things of Christ. God, the answer to both is give us a clear vision of you this morning. God, help us in this time of response to see our deep-seated need for the Savior and that we would graciously run to him because in his arms, no one gets turned back who comes to him in childlike trust. Sovereign Lord, do this work in the souls of men this morning. Amen.